0: Today podcast, a show that helps men like you and me who are struggling to get unstuck and overcome fear to live confidently and courageously. I'm your host and transformation coach, Mike Forster, helping you create the change you want now. Join me as I interview men who've conquered their challenges and soared to success as they spill their secrets on how they live fearless today. Well, hello, and welcome back, my friend. Well, this week, it's Clint Hatton. He and I have uh, already been chatting away, looking so forward to sharing his journey, what he's com- where he's come from, where he's going to, and where he's at right now. I mean, just being present in this time. So Clint's got a great journey, and uh, man, super excited to dive in. He's an author, a coach. A motivational speaker, father, husband, man has been on both sides and can speak to not only hey, what does success look like, but what does it look like, um, you know, coming from the place you want to transition, um, you know, out of. So the man gets it. So a lot of compassion, a lot of grace and encouragement from Clint. So Clint, how are you doing today, my friend?
1: I am doing awesome, Mike. Thank you so much for having me on, man. I'm looking forward to this. Absolutely.
0: Well, let's start out. What does today look like on the professional side of life for you?
1: Yeah, well, today it looked like a complete uh, travesty with my email account that went down this morning. That's what it looks like today, Mike. Uh, it, was, it was pretty brutal. I got this morning to do an interview uh, really early. I had like a 7.30 podcast interview, went to check my primary email for the link and something happened overnight. It was totally shut down. We're not going to bore everybody with that but I spent about half my day fixing that but anyway it's it's all good now and so I'm back cool. to smiling and happy and it's all good. But uh thank you for asking me that. You know, today it just looks different, you know. Um I- I've been through some changes the last few years some we'll we'll get into a little bit later for sure. But I you know, I'm yes, I'm a, a trans- transformational speaker and coach. That's what I love to do. I love to help people. That's something Really, that started at a very, very young age, you know, really even into my teens. I just really love to help people. Um, Now, you're probably going to hear part of my story from back then. I was a little bit of a train wreck, so I'm not sure how much help I was. But, you know, I had that desire to do it. And so now, you know, I I do a lot of uh, speaking and coaching. I love doing these podcast interviews. Uh, I've been doing a lot of those. I really, I just really feel like this is such a great forum able to put out some some great ideas and concepts and life hacks and all those kinds of things. And so I, that's one of the reasons why I'm thrilled to be on with you today. You're doing such a great job of that. And I'm sure there's a ton of guys out there that are tuning in or, or maybe going to tune in later that are just going to pick up some great tools along the way with with a lot of your interviews. So podcasts are a really big thing. Um, I did write a book recently, which I think you mentioned. So that's that's a project that's complete but it's still a big part of today because obviously I'm still doing things to to promote it and get it in the hands of people I've uh, been really thrilled to hear you know just the change it's been able to enact in people's lives in some cases some really deep healing from trauma and things like that too so it's kind of a kind of a mixed bag in terms of one day is different from the next in terms of exactly what I'm doing but man, no complaints, my friend. I love it. And I love helping people. And I, and I love, I love talking. So this is a, uh, this is an easy one.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. Well, thank you, my friend. <laughs> yeah. And what does life look like on the personal side uh, for you at this point?
1: Yeah. Well, my bride and I are creeping up on 20 years. That'll be next uh, April. So next wait, Yeah. April next month. Uh, i'm the one who knows the dates by the way it is april 20th i know exactly when we got married if you were to ask her right now she she might not get it right but anyway we're celebrating 20 years and i i like to say i have it on most of my social media and website and different places where i just talk about my basic story but i i call myself a deliriously happily married man which is a bit of a tongue twister but it's totally true and you know I, she's my best friend we um we have an amazing story together and I just, I wouldn't do life with anyone else. I mean, she's just so much, so much of a joy in my life. And then of course, you know, I have three boys, one who is already in, in heaven. It's, you know, for us, he, he was heaven bound. And, and so that, that's been a tough part of our story, which we'll talk a little bit about later, but I also have two other boys, one that's 18 and the other that's 13 and my 18 year old, we just took a trip last week to Oklahoma state which has been his dream school forever, and he did, and we're picking out uh, you know rooms and all that kind of stuff. So lots of exciting things happening in my personal life right now.
0: Like that's a whole lot right there, man.
1: <laughs> yeah, it is. It is no doubt. Oh, my third, I should say, my thirteen-year-old is a black belt in martial arts, mm. and so that keeps us busy on most weeknights.
0: <laughs> yeah, I can only imagine. <laughs> Jeez. Well, let's. Let's kind of go back. Um, Like you said, you know, it's kind of started out rough as far as I think you said like a train wreck, right? So what was life like and who were you at that time? You know?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, Mike, the funny thing is, you know, when I tell this part of my story, I feel like I had a really, um, I don't know if normal is the right word. (laughs) I think the older we get, we kind of understand there really is nothing that's normal. But, you know, I had what I, I consider to be a pretty normal average childhood upbringing. Um, I grew up in sunny Southern California. Uh, we, weren't, we weren't wealthy. You know, we were probably middle class, maybe a little bit lower middle class. But we did have a pool, you know, which was pretty awesome. And so lots of time in the sun. I was an athlete. I played football. I played baseball. You know, very active. And so life was pretty good, you know. And then around eleven or twelve, that's when things kind of took a turn, or our world got rocked somewhat. My dad, um, well, let me point this out real quick. My parents had me at a much later age; they were in their uh, mid late thirties by the time they had me. I was actually eight years behind my oldest brother because my mom had actually had a partial hysterectomy. They never thought uh, that she would have children again. The doctor told her she couldn't have children again, and so surprise, here I am. So I came along and. <laughs> And uh, so what happened though was, is, you know, they were, they'd been married 25 years by the time I was 11 years old. And it was the only man my mom ever knew They got married at 18 and 16. And my dad ended up having an affair and he didn't just end up having an affair. He ended up moving out and he ended up living with this, uh, this other woman. And she, she happened to have a son as well. That was, I believe only about two years older than I was. And so, you know, that's, it's going to change things, right? It, it yep. rocked our world, and what came of that? Now, this is about a two-year total journey because I'm going to give your listeners kind of the fast forward. My parents did eventually end up reconciling. Uh, we ended up having, as far as our relationship goes, we had a really healthy relationship for most of my adult life, and they actually were married over 65 years. By the time they both passed away in their 80s, which has been about eight years ago, uh, but this this two-year period was definitely formative to just how i would choose to deal with trauma and difficult situations and so what happened was during that time when my dad had moved out my mom ended up suffering from suicidal ideation uh, she was drinking really heavily trying to, she tried to take herself out a couple of times with taking pills and just having drank a lot and obviously was unsuccessful and then we had a couple of, of moments that were pretty scary for me one was in a, a vehicle she was drunk she'd been you know drinking quite a bit of course i'm 11 so i can't drive us home and we ended up spinning out on a really narrow uh two-lane highway in southern california where i grew up where actually wasn't uncommon for people to wreck and in some cases lose their life so mm-hmm. uh, i was very lucky uh, she was very lucky that we got out of that situation and then another time with a handgun where she was you know, just saying she was going to take her life out. I, my dad and I both kind of jumped on top of her and wrestled the gun away. And, you know, so it's some pretty traumatic things. So ultimately, you know, I think the importance of that story, just in terms of where things got wonky for me is even when they reconciled, which was just, you know, again, less than two years later, uh, it did something to me and I became, I think a kind word to my old self would be independent. A lesser kind word would probably be really rebellious. <laughs> you know, you can take your pick which one it is. But ultimately, I, that's when I started really abusing drugs and alcohol. So at a very young age, 12, 13 years old, you know, and if it wasn't for the fact, I really believe this, Mike, you know, I I remained an athlete um, competitively. I'll say it that way. I've been an athlete. I work out. I, I do a lot of things still this day, but a competitive athlete up until my second year of junior college football. So there was there was the only th- or that was the only thing that I feel like kept me from going completely off the deep end into complete drug addiction and just not doing anything positive. So I did have that going on, but regardless as you know it's a terrible coping mechanism and so that's how I dealt with things. Uh you know, I tried to just kind of drown out my pain. Um guised as I just like to have a good time. But I think what ultimately happened is by the time I was 19, I, I suffered a catastrophic, my second actually catastrophic knee injury competing in junior college football. And my, my only real desire and dream at that point, Mike, was to use that skill to be able to go to a, a bigger school and, and finish my education. When the football was taken away from me, and I'm not out of this, you know, I wish I had a greater motivation that, but at that time I didn't, uh, I just didn't know what to do. And so at that point, I knew I had to make money and I got into the, the car business at 21 years old, which you know, that in and of itself is not a bad thing, but that's what actually introduced me to meth. And so I ended up becoming friends with some guys that we would, you know, back in those days we called it crank and you know, we'd start crank even in the bathroom at times and you know, we'd party on the weekends. There were There were times where I was up for literally three days straight without even going to sleep on our long weekends, you know, and things like that. And that went on for years. So I always, weird uh, balance isn't even the right word, but, you know, I had a job, I was making a living, you know, I was taking care of myself. So when you think of most meth abusers, that's probably not what you're picturing, although that is very common. You know, I I know where I grew up, you'd picture a guy with rotted out teeth, a white white guy with rotted out teeth uh, pushing his bike and his three belongings through the park. That's what meth looked like where I grew up, you know, but I wasn't, I I was a professional salesperson. I took care of business, but I was still a train wreck emotionally and my coping mechanisms were awful. And so ultimately where that led me, Mike, was I I ended up in a marriage that, um, spoiler alert, I wasn't very... (laughs) equipped as you can tell already. So the odds of that marriage going well, as you could imagine, were very small and it didn't, it didn't go well at all. We, we were a total train wreck as a married couple. We both had a lot of pain, a lot of hurts um, from the past and not, not necessarily all hurts from each other, just stuff that we carried into those relationships, you know, that just became very destructive, especially when alcohol and, and drugs are your, Or your coping mechanism. And then, and then I had a moment, Mike, is what happened. It really was almost like there was this one singular moment in time where things began to shift. And I want to frame this really well for, for your listeners, because the truth is there were other things going on around it. I'm just telling you how it felt. Right. But what happened was I was uh, 30 years old. And we had just done meth the night before, hadn't done it in a while actually, but decided to do it again. And so we did. And that next morning I woke up Mike and, you know, it's not that you ever felt (laughs) bright eyed and cheery coming off of meth, you know, it's, it's, it's hard on your body, but I just, I didn't just not feel good. I was kind of disgusted with myself and disgusted with just the whole lifestyle behind it, you know, and putting myself in dangerous situations. Just it and you know just all the things that go along with it, uh, and I just that day, I just made a decision that I was done uh, with that. I was no longer going to do any kind of hard drugs like that. I just I literally quit cold turkey. I I said today's the day. I'm done. I want to be a different person, and I never looked back. And that was over 27 years ago. But that was just that piece, you know, emotionally uh, being able to function in a marriage in a relationship. Those things were highly dysfunctional. So that's, that just kind of sets the stage where I was at, at that part of my life.
0: Right. Um The one thing that I'm like, kind of looking at, and it's like, I've known from other people, even though like our parents may reconcile, it still mm. leaves, you know, emotions and feelings within us. Was there anything along the lines of like, when your dad went and was with the other woman and she had a son that was about your same age, was there mm-hmm. any kind of wondering of like, why not me, dad? You know, like any kind of self-reflection on you in comparison with this other boy? Was there stuff that came out of that?
1: Yeah. You know, I was, I was definitely angry. You know, we had a really, I just think it was such a bizarre experience. Cause I'll never forget how I found out about it, which was through my dad. He literally took me on a ride in the car one day, which was, you know, not, we, we didn't go out for Sunday strolls in the car. So I was trying to figure out what I did wrong. Right. You know, but we're driving along and he, and he starts telling me, he goes, Hey, I want I just need to tell you something. And so he tells me that he's you know having this relationship with this other woman. And he told me, you need to, it has nothing to do with you. It's me and mom. And we've been fighting for years. And then yeah, of You know, of course, as a kid, you see your parents fighting at times, and and so it's not like I'm not I'm not trying to paint a picture here that wasn't real. You know, when I say I felt like I had a normal childhood, for me, them yelling and screaming once in a while was just normal, so I didn't really think that much about it. You know, to be honest with you, but anyway, ultimately, he ends up telling me this whole thing, and I want you to meet her, and you know, I'm going to set up a date where we can all go out and get to know each other, and you know, I remember that drive vividly, and I just I was just so confused by it. And I didn't really say much, and I don't think I to answer your question. I don't think I consciously at that time was um, dealing with any kind of comparison mm-hmm. between me and him. But I do th- the other son. But I do think what ultimately happened is you know we and we did go out on that date. By the way, we went bowling and it was totally weird and you know I did not enjoy it at all. But I tried to just be friendly and and that's kind of what happened there. But then. As, as I ended up having to deal with all the stuff that was going on with my mom, because my brother, I told you a little bit ago, he was eight years older. He had moved away. He lived, you know, eight, nine hours away on his own. And and so it was just me and her. And so I think more so than comparison of, you know, me not measuring up like the other boy or why him, not me. It was more this deep resentment that started at that age. About you screwed up my life. You've put me in this position. You know, I've had to deal with all this stuff. I mean, my mom would, you know, try to talk to me about things that, you know, I I don't want to say they weren't inappropriate for human beings to be talking about, but they were very inappropriate. And I was very ill equipped to talk to her about certain things about their relationship. But she would get drunk and, you know, be really depressed and start to, tell me stuff about their relationship that I didn't want to know. And part of the reasons why things went the way they did, you know? So there was all that stuff mixed in. Um, And as time went on, you know, again, I think that's what really grew in me, even though, like I said, after a few years, our relationship got better in many ways, Mm -hmm. but I, but I didn't, it took me until my thirties, to actually begin to recognize the damage that it, it had done and the uh the mindset shifts that it made in me that made me independent in some really negative ways unhealthy ways really just like everybody leave me alone i'm going to do what i want to do kind of mentality that's i think that was really the biggest result out of that season of my life
0: so how did you like when you're in your thirties, how did you get rid of that feeling of resentment of, you know, bitterness? How did you come back to where you're like, wait, I need to heal and move on. And whatever mom and dad did was mom and dad. And this is, this is for Clint. I mean, how did you get there?
1: Yeah, that, that's a great question. And frankly, if you'd asked me that question, even probably eight, nine years ago, I would have answered it totally differently. Because, you know, and you and I talked about this a little bit before we went on air, you know, life is a journey. Guys are listening to this, man. Life is a journey. I really believe there's no actual destination. We're just trying to be the best version of ourselves we can, right? And so during those years from, say, you know, 13, 14, up until I was in my 30s, what you would typically hear me say if I even talked about this story at all would be is that, uh, you know, they were they're human beings too. And so I would just say that, and it made me feel better temporarily. But what happened is, you know, once I got into my 30s, and my life began to change for much more positive. And there were some things going on around that 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 was a catalyst to that that we can bounce back to if you want. But a little bit older, it's only then I began to recognize some of the patterns that came from that. I'll give you one simple example, and it's. The one I'm most, um, I mean, I don't live in regret. I think regret's a very dangerous transaction, but it's, it is definitely a part of my life that I wish my story was different. And that is when I was in relationships with women, everything would be fine until they cheated on me or if they threatened to cheat on me and something would just, the switch would flip. And I could get very angry. I could get very verbally abusive. I could shove them around. We could throw stuff at each other. You know, Um, there was that kind of, I was abusive, you know, in that situation. And I never, I never really recognized it during those years until I was in my 30s when I began to, you know, start the process of healing and really begin to actually take a hard look at how I've lived my life and even ask myself the questions, why did I always respond that way? Cause it was really the only thing they can make me mad about all kinds of other things. And I wouldn't go off and I wouldn't be an abuser, but man, you bring up cheating and man, it's just, I was a different person, you know? And so I think, you know, once I got in my thirties and again, started the healing process, that's when I was able to start looking back and go, okay, I get it now. You know, that trauma, I never dealt with the trauma because everything that I went through was because my dad cheated on my mom.
0: So how did you start working through that? I mean, man, I I, I can look back at, you know, the past that I have. I wasn't equipped. Once I came to that realization, it's like, (laughs) oh, it's it's not like I had like a PhD or a doctorate or even the smallest, like, you know, listing of what steps to go through. I mean, how did you, how did you go from, hey, yeah, there's a problem and I need to heal to actually walking that out?
1: Yeah, that that is such a great question. And man, I'd say I'm sure we probably lived in a in a similar neighborhood. The way it sounds, right? I know growing up, maybe it was like this for you. Maybe it was a little bit different. But with my dad, for example, you know, we we uh, if I were to we didn't even use the term. Let me say this: emotional intelligence. Even know if the, that term even existed back then, yeah. but if it did, on a scale of one to ten, our emotional intelligence would probably have been about a one or a two, right? You know, it just wasn't something. That we did. We didn't talk through things. We certainly didn't go to anything like, you know, therapy or something like that. Um, you know, I, I even grew up with, you know, you, if you got an injury, you know, we, I still joke with my boys today. I don't actually do this to them, but I joke my dad used to say, rub dirt on it or tape an aspirin to it, you know, and get back in there. You know, that's just how we were. So, exactly like you and probably like a lot of guys out there, just there was no training, there was no mentoring, there was no, um, you know, any kind of of uh, path that was forged for me. So what really began to happen is, is I think, Mike, ultimately, I just began to make better choices with who I surrounded myself with. Because leading into this, you know, even when I quit meth cold turkey, uh, I had gotten involved in a network marketing company, and it just happened to be a health and wellness company, which probably was a factor too, because I started taking some supplements, you know, and and taking care of my body better too. But in that company, uh, I was was really involved. Uh, My upline, those who have never been in direct sales or network marketing, forgive me for the terms, but that's the people that, you know, sign you up basically. But the two that were my immediate upline were both very, very successful people. And they spent a lot of time mentoring me. And in this particular company... We had a lot of workshops and different types of trainings where it would either be with a group of people, or in some cases, I get a chance to talk one-on-one with some of these who now became mentors in my life. And I think the first thing that happened, and this is something I really hope the guys out there are listening to, is they would they didn't even have to talk to me directly necessarily. They would just teach all of these, what we might call success principles but really what they were doing was they were empowering me and encouraging me that I could be more than I had proven I had been so far. I could be someone who actually could have an impact. I could be someone who had high character and high integrity. Uh, I was a pretty hard worker. So that part I had, but you know, there was just certain characteristics that nobody had really spoken those things into me before. Or at least if they did, it never stuck, and I and I didn't feel like I ever had that. So that began to happen. That was part of it. I began to think differently about myself, about my giftings, about my future. Um, and but then you know I had a, a a pretty big thing happen for me as well. You know, at, at thirty years old, I was not a religious kid at all. Uh, matter of fact, I did not grow up in the church at all. But ultimately, through some of these mentors, I had one who very, in a very friendly way <laughs> would invite me to church over and over and over again. And so finally, one day I went and I went like solely, I wasn't seeking religion. I wasn't seeking Jesus, none of that stuff consciously, but there's one thing I'd recognized about the way they lived their life that intrigued me. And that was, they had crummy stuff happen too, mm. but they always seemed to have a measure of what I would call peace now or calm, you know, about it. They just responded to the gut punches of life a little bit differently than I did. And so I finally went one day and ultimately that ended up leading me to a decision that I believe in God and that I was going to have a relationship with God. And so that also happened right at, about 31 years old. So I had all these different things going on and these changes. And so I think that's, that's initially what started me on the healing process and the journey of discovering why I reacted the way I did as I was younger and began to give me some of the tools that I could use to just, like I said, grow into the kind of man that I wanted to be. A lot of that was reading books from all kinds of different authors and, and things like that.
0: So I'm going to ask you, you're talking to 30 year old Mike yeah, who had a belief. This is who I am. This is the way I am. I can't change this path that I've been on is the path that I'm going from what you've shared. That's a bunch of bull, right?
1: Yeah, sure. Yep.
0: So what would you say to, to me as 30 year old Mike to help me go? Oh yeah. Hey, I do see that I can change and the, the things that you were experiencing and the changes that occurred for you, how would you, you know, encourage me that, Something like that is possible, not just for you, but for me as well,
1: yeah, well, the first thing I would do, and this is what I do you know in in my coaching too, when I talk to someone one on one is i would I would ask that person to tell me their story, so you Mike tell me your story because it's so important, you know that's why I, I appreciate you taking the time you know to ask me about where I've been and, and some of my journey, and you know some of it's probably more exciting than others, but you know, it's it, it's it's really helpful to ask someone to tell their story and then ask, is this how you envision your life? Because I don't think there's very many people out there that Mike, you're talking about, right? At 30 years old, that let's say, let's say they feel like it's been a total train wreck and they've never really accomplished anything significant and all those things. If you're to ask them, how did you envision their life? It wasn't that most likely. It's not what they wanted for their life. It's just where they've ended up. Through through habits and and mindsets and circumstances and in some cases trauma and tragedy and things that have you know informed the way they see the world and it's just led them into an unhealthy pattern. So I would just ask them first, you know, tell me how did you envision your life? What would you what would you if you could if you couldn't fail? Right, we've all heard that one. If you couldn't fail, how would your life look differently? I think that's the first place to start. And the reason why I say that is the greatest coach in the world can't tell somebody who they're supposed to be, and then make them be that. Coaches dig out the gold that's already in you. They dig out the gold that's already in you. And I would be telling that, that Mike, there's three things. I'll do this quickly, but there's three things that I believe about every human being. And I believe it about that, Mike. And that is that you were, you were created to be courageous. I believe that the courage is inside of us. And I can prove it. Last week, I saw a video of a teenage kid who jumped into a frozen lake because a car had went into the water and it was beginning to sink. It was an SUV and the back window was open and he went in and out of it twice to pull out a dog and, and the lady who was driving it at his own peril. How did he do that? Do you think he stood on the side in the ice where there was, by the way, about five other people staying there that didn't jump in? But what did he do? He just, he just went for it. Why? Because courage was already in him. He didn't have time to think about it, right? It's in there. It's just when it comes to our life, more often than not, we do need to think about it. (laughs) You know, we're not, life isn't filled with all these reactionary situations in life. And so I would tell that, Mike, there's courage in you. We just need to help you unearth it and bring it out because it's already in there. Second thing is, is, I believe everybody has a creative genius. Now, I don't know if we have time for this. I probably should. Well, maybe I could give you a reference to somebody who wants to go read it. But NASA did a study years ago where they, and I'm going to give you kind of the 30,000 foot view of this study. Okay. Basically, what they did was they brought in some scientists to literally create a a, a test that would measure the creative genius of their rocket scientists for the sole purpose of determining who they could give the most difficult problems to because creative genius is is defined as your ability that's in you to be able to come up with creative solutions and ideas to various problems, right? So this already sounds out of, out of league for all of us, right? Like, you know, how many people are rocket scientists? 2%, 1% maybe, right? Well, I'll give you the, the end game to that. The test ended up being so radically effective and accurate that these scientists ended up taking 1,600 kids through this thing over the course of over 20-plus years. I'm going to give you the bookends to it. When they tested these kids at four and five years old, 98% tested as a creative genius. Let that sink in for a minute. 98%. It's in you, my friend. The bookend was, by the time they're in their mid-20s, two. Two.
0: What buries it then?
1: What buries it? That's right. I mean, that's that's exactly
0: right. 98%. That's almost everybody, right? Yeah. 2%. That's almost nobody. And that's, interestingly, that 2% is what's remaining out of that 98%. But what buries it that we're not utilizing at what was that? Uh, 12 years later, what buried it?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and it was, it was interesting the way it, you know, this is such a great topic. Let me go ahead and give you the middle part because it'll probably make a lot more sense. Okay. So, so they tested again, there were four and five year olds. They tested five years later, it dropped down to uh, 36%. They tested again in the high school years, it dropped down to 12%. And then by the mid twenties, actually the average age because they end up doing this with a total of a million people total. I just gave you the very first time they did it. It ended up being about 2%. So what, what did happen? Well, we know there's so many factors, right? And some of it we've talked about. You know, you and I have been through things. There's trauma in our lives. There's the way we are you know, brought up. Um, our school systems, and I'm not trying to bag on public school systems. My kids are in public school systems. But they are not designed for every child. They are not designed for every kid. To have success they're not designed for every creative genius genius to be appreciated and and developed so you got all these different factors that do it right but here's the cool part because I, I wouldn't have, i wouldn't have brought this up if i was gonna have to leave you at the two percent right that was great yeah i'm not having that dude on again what a what a bummer <laughs> <laughs> but what's really interesting is is what they discovered and i'm not gonna get in the weeds with science because i'm not a scientist but there is two main types of thinking that your brain does, one called convergent, one called divergent. And what happens is we're normally in a battle between the two, and that doesn't work very well. <laughs> mm. But what they what they discovered is, is that part of your brain that is so necessary for your creative genius to flourish is the same part of your brain that operates when you dream.
0: It's so in within you. a five year period, 60% of people quit dreaming.
1: They don't necessarily quit dreaming, but they don't know how to operate in both of those sets in the real world. So it remains a function only in their dream life. This is really important. You know, This is really an important step because what are we talking about? Let's go back to where we were in my story. People began to tell me that I could do better. People began to tell me I could think better. People began to tell me, I could be successful. People began to tell me you have a gift. In my case, it was talking. I mean, they recognize that, but everybody's got something else. Somebody else, they may be a creative genius in accounting. They may be a creative genius as a, as a coach. They may be an creative genius as an incredible parent that could mentor other parents. You know, it, it doesn't matter what your creative genius is. It's in there. So that's why it's so important for you to, to take some steps. And often that will entail you know, reading or bringing someone like you, a coach on or me that that helps kind of unearth or unpack some of the stuff that's buried that creative genius. But I can tell you really quick because I want to give you a tool so I don't forget. There's a few different types of exercises that we can all do that actually enact that part of your brain in the real world. And two of them are very easy to do. You may already actually do them. One is called mind mapping. So, if your listeners have never heard of that, Google it, <laughs> Google it, Google it. It's really easy to find, but it's a form of putting your thoughts on paper that actually activates that creative process, that creative part of your brain that maybe is dormant uh, and another one is just journaling. Journaling is another that's one of the two top that neuroscience will tell you two of the top exercises that you can do to activate that creative nature in you well.
0: I've got a question, but before I do, before I ask, I want to know what the third point is. So in the three things that we have, so you said creative, uh, yeah, 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 that's two, what's the third one?
1: We're created, be compassionate. We absolutely have compassion in us. Now it can, it can be developed. It can grow. Um, you know, I can tell you with what I've been through the last few years, I feel like I've been a compassionate person for a very long time. But after I lost my son, which we haven't talked too much about yet, I, I feel like my compassion for human beings went to the next level. I think sometimes pain will do that. Now, pain, you know, if you if you don't um learn to have certain coping mechanisms that aid you in healing, you can get trapped in it and you can become far less than But yeah, compassionate. I think every single one of us has it in us to really bring value to this planet. And be compassionate and make a difference for another human being. Wow.
0: Agreed. When you said dreaming, just to clarify, are you talking about like they're dreaming at night or they right. have dreams and aspirations, things that they want to shoot for?
1: Yeah. And this particular, with the science we're talking about that the scientists r- referred to, he was mentioning that it's that part of your brain that operates at night in your sleep that still keeps this mechanism going in your brain so you actually don't lose the ability it's just affect i'm using the word dormant
0: so how do you reactivate it i mean i know you're 30 you're hanging around a new another group you're hearing positive and encouraging words and and you know the way they're describing you is completely different than what you had experienced before how do you, you know, reactivate that and, and get it going again?
1: Yeah, well, what I I strongly recommend to someone is, is again, I'm I'm going to kind of repeat myself here at first, go back to who do you want to be? Who do you really want to be in, in this life when it's all said and done? Forget about fear. Forget about, you know, what you haven't done in the past because no one can change. We can't change what we just said 10 seconds ago, right? right. So forget about that. Who do you want to be? Write it out. Like seriously, sit down with a piece of paper get in a quiet place and write out the characteristics of the type of person you want to be. That's a great place to start. I actually have an exercise I've done with uh, several people and since it it sounds a little morbid, but it actually is pretty effective for this. And that is write your own eulogy. You know, you go to, I hate funerals. You know, I, I don't like going to funerals at all. But when they're done well, one of the most beautiful things about a funeral is the beautiful things that are said about that human being in the eulogy, right? Mm -hmm. Well, we control that, Mike. We control that, you know, and even to that 30-year-old self, one thing I would say is because when you feel stuck and you feel like you can't change, I would ask, do you think you're going to leave a legacy? Most would say, no, I don't think so. Or they may say, "I don't know if it is. It's going to be small." And and I believe the real answer to that is: is you're going to leave a legacy no matter what. <laughs> you're already leaving a legacy, but if you and I are going to be true to this idea that this is a journey, then as long as you have breath, you can change the narrative. So I, I and I do this. I write down who I want to be. I still do it. I'm not done. I'm not even. Close to done cooking, right? I mean, I'm I'm a much better version of myself than I was, you know, three years ago, five years ago, 15 years ago, or whatever. But if you're not growing, you're regressing. That's that's just a fact. Nobody can just stay steady and not grow and not regress. You're you're doing one or the other. So for me, find out from you (laughs) who do you want to be, what kind of person do you want to be? Then one thing you may need to do. Is sometimes the real, true golden gifts in us either come so easy to us that we don't even see them that way, um, or there's just been enough negativity around us and people that don't speak life into us that we just don't see it being true. But, you know, sit down, write down the gifts you think you have, and then pull in three, four, five people that you trust and ask them the question. And I know that's awkward you know, at first, and I know that sounds kind of scary, but I'm telling you, it's an amazing, uh, amazing exercise because you're going to hear things about self, yourself, most likely, that you either didn't know that's how people really saw you and it's going to encourage you, uh, or you're going to find out that you have a superpower that you thought was ordinary and everybody else around you thinks it's extraordinary. And that's a launching pad, Mike. That's a launching pad. You know, the truth is, again, and we don't want this to be scary, right? When we say journey, we don't mean that you're never going to reach a, a you know, a place where you feel better about yourself and where you're going. You can do that very quickly. But it's going to take one step at a time. And you can only do it one day at a time. You know, I, I can only grow today. I can only choose to do something with my day-to-day, whether I have this great conversation with you or whether I read a book or I listen to a podcast or whatever it is that I feel like feeds that part of me that wants to grow and be better. You can only do that one day at a time. Patience. (laughs) you know.
0: Absolutely. That's often the hardest thing is to show ourselves patience. So from this point here, there's still a lot we could talk about in Mm -hmm. what you've just shared, but I want to jump ahead and talk about your son, Gabriel. Can you share um, how life again changed for you
1: um, with Gabriel? Yeah, and and that's that's a great way to say it. You know, life changed because that's that's how this journey works, right, Mike? I mean, I like to say it this way. It may not be everybody's favorite way of life. Can be a mixed bag. You know, we can have some great victories, some great joys, doing doing really well in certain ways in certain areas, and and then you get a gut punch and they go together. It's not one or the other, you know? And so that's, that's how life had kind of been. We had went through some ups and downs in our marriage. We had a couple of, a couple of our boys were born very prematurely. So we went through some stuff as a family, right? But all in all things were really good. And then Gabriel, Gabriel's our oldest and he was, um, <laughs> he was a force in nature. He was he, from a very early stage, I'm talking four or five years old, He had very strong communication skills pretty early on. And so with that, that, uh, (laughs) that can be a blessing. And at times it could also be very frustrating because, you know, he would talk back to you already and already knew it all. And I'm like, dude, you're not even in middle school yet. (laughs) Slow the train, slow the train. But, you know, he was just, he was a go-getter. He was an adventurer. He was always like wanting to know what's next, what's next. And so at eight years old, he, got the bug. He went up in a small aircraft with his uncle, Danny, who's a pilot. Uh, He had a couple of really cool planes. And so he went up with him and it just, it just did something in him and he decided I want to be a pilot. And so, you know, as most dads do, we think, okay, great, you know, someday. And you just think that's may or may not be something he really ends up wanting to do. Who knows? We'll see, but he didn't let go of it. I mean, it was a steady thing. So fast forward to when he was in high school uh, he had some really cool opportunities come up, which we were very excited about. And, and we really felt like, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, you know, I, I I am a man of faith. I was a pastor for 17 years. I really felt like for us that God had opened the door to some things for him, for it to happen for him. So we were super excited about that. You know, that was our perspective. And when it happened, you know, I couldn't afford to pay for his flight school. You know, I don't know if you've ever checked into that or you know anything about it, but you know, 10 to 15 grand is not hard to throw down at all. And I know people have spent twice that, you know, and so what happened is freshman year of high school, we ended up being in a school district that offered a four-year aviation track on the educational side of things, which is not typical. There's still not many of those around. And then also he joined this club at a local airport really close to our home and this club is this amazing club. This guy, Kevin Lacey, who started, it's called Tango 31 Aero Club. He started this club for kids. And specifically, it was only for teenagers. It was for teenagers that had some sort of love for aviation. And when I say that, they didn't necessarily have to want to be a pilot, but if they liked being around planes, or if they wanted to go into maybe aircraft maintenance, like working on stuff, you know, you could be a part of this club. So he joined this thing and it began to open the doors for him to, by the time he was 16, to actually start going up in a plane. And so he ultimately became a licensed pilot at 17 years old. He soloed at 16 before he had his driver's license, which is a crazy deal. Wait, a minute, And he wait was on a his minute. way. Wait a minute, Yeah. He, he's yeah. 16. Yeah. Yeah. He's got yeah. his
0: pilot's license yeah. and not his car license.
1: Yeah. Well, okay. So at 16, you can't have your license, but yeah. once your flight instructor feels you're ready, you can start flying solo. So he did solo before he had his driver's license for a car. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so that gives you a little bit of an idea. He was fearless. He was courageous. You know, he just attacked life. He didn't let, if he wanted to do something, like we had a little conversation earlier about, I have some guitars on the wall behind me. You know, we're literally sitting in the living room one night and didn't even know he had even picked one up off the wall, you know, and we hear this. And I, Mike, it's killing me because I'm an '80s rock guy. I Can't remember the song. It's killing me. But we hear this, like, let's just say it's Leonard Skinner. You know, I'm like, did you hear that? <laughs> She's like, yeah, that sounded live. Like, I think it was live. We go running into the room, and sure enough, man, I'm like, when did you learn guitar? <laughs> he goes, YouTube. So of course, you know, some of the guys listening out there are like, yeah, we could. I can do anything with YouTube in my life, you know, but, but that's just how it was, you know? So he, so he went for it. He got his license at 17. He had decided at that point that he did want to pursue a full career Had everything laid out. He was beginning his instrument, uh, instrument rating training. That was going really well. He was taking some college classes because he, he graduated well and, and just killing it, killing life, just loving it. And on September 23rd of 2019, he took A trip, just a normal day, Uh, took a friend to Arkansas, which is north of us. I'm here in the Dallas area. And uh, he dropped her off safely. And on the way back, he ended up running into an unexpected weather system and ended up uh, suffering from something they call spatial disorientation, which is basically, for your listeners, most people are familiar with the Kobe Bryant crash just because of how famous he was. Same thing happened to his pilot. Uh, except my son wasn't in a million dollar helicopter. You know, he was in a little Cessna. And so he didn't have all the bells and whistles and he flew into a mountainside and he lost his life living his dream. And so, you know, as you can imagine, it was it was a devastating blow to our family. And um, it's a hole that will never be filled. You know, um, we think about him, I don't even know how many times a day, you know, he's he's still lives so many different ways in spirit. You know, he's, he was an inspiration uh, to us in so many ways. Ultimately, you know, he's the reason why I wrote the book when I wrote it. And it has the title that it has Um, something happened the morning after Michael share with you quickly the morning after he crashed. And I'd, I'd had to sit down with my two other boys and tell, you know, what happened, which was excruciating. And they were nine and 14 at the time. And when I set them down, you know, I think, I think one advantage I do really sincerely feel like I had Mike was the advantage of being a pastor for 17 years did help me in this way, because the type of pastor I was, I I was involved in people's lives, coaching and mentoring and marriage stuff. And, and sometimes, you know, hard losses and, and losing loved ones, stuff like that. And I had at least seen in or heard about through stuff I studied to prepare for that, of where people didn't put in place healthy mindsets and it ate them alive. And many marriages end up in divorce. And you know, so so I knew as as difficult as our tragedy was, as painful it was, we had to set a compass for where we were going to go as a family. And so I set the boys on the couch and I looked at them and I said, listen, we have two choices. We can either choose life or death. And I call it a life mentality or a death mentality. And it's really simple. It's not complicated. The life mentality for us was your brother, Gabriel attack life. We, we wanted him to live until we were old and gone. We, you know, we, we would take him back tomorrow, but he lived more in just under 18 years than a lot of people live their entire life. And I said, so boys, We're going to focus on how he lived, not the tragedy of how he died. Because if we focus on that, we're going to be shadows of who we were meant to be. And so we, as a family, we made a pact that day that that's what we're going to do. And what happened was later that afternoon, and this is going to sound crazy to everybody, but I had to frame it that way for you. Otherwise, it's not going to make a lot of... We were contacted by a couple of news. Because you know when it was a plane crash, which is always news, And then his age made it even bigger news in some ways. And so NBC here in Dallas was one of them. And she, her name is Katie, and and wanted to see if I could do an interview that day. This is the day of, you know, or day after. And of course, we were a complete mess. And I told her there was no possible way we can do this. And so at the end of the call, she was very kind, very sweet about it. You know, this wasn't, it probably sounded rude the way I just said it. She was very polite about it. But at the end of the call, she said something pretty critical. She says, well, I just, Mr. Hatton, just think about it and let me know later today. If you change your mind, I just want to leave you with this thought. If I I have to do the story, it's an assignment. We're going to do a story tonight. If I do the story without you, it's just basically going to be a report on his death. If you'll allow me, I'll come to your home we'll take as long as we need. We'll take breaks. We'll do whatever we need to do, but you can tell his story about how he lived. That was pretty big. My big test, big time. I mean, it's getting me a little bit right now. Um, big test, but we knew that was, we, we had a, a family discussion after that, including even my father-in-law through us here. And he was actually the one who said, you, you really should do it. So we did. And, and, um, And I'm so grateful we did for a variety of reasons. But one of which, what happened somewhere in the interview, I don't remember saying it, but I had said he lived his life big, bold, and brave. And what happened was because that that's all a blur. To this day, I have no actual recollection other than what I've seen on video entire interview. I mean, it was just it was just a blur. But when we saw the segment being played back to us at the very end of it, instead of playing me saying it, the reporter said. Gabriel's parents encourage you to live like Gabriel, big, bold, and brave. And when I heard it back to me, that was life, Mike, there was life on it, you know? And it, I mean, it's two years later before it becomes a, my, my brand and, and the book that was nowhere even on the radar, but it, but it became just a family mantra. And it was something we use because it's been hard, Mike. I, I don't want any of your listeners to think, so yeah, it was big bold brave and we just made this decision about life and it's been a cakewalk, you know. It hasn't been. It, it it's had some really hard hard moments. But it's it's a language and an agreement that we made with each other as a family that's allowed us to keep recalibrating back to that mindset that in order to honor his life, we're going we're going to live big bold brave whatever that looks like. And so, as a family, we're doing that one step at a time, you know, in the midst of our new journey here. And for me, it's the it's the writing a book now and speaking and doing those things. My wife is an artist, and there's been some artistic creative genius, if I could say it that way, since I used it earlier, that has come out of her from this that is incredible. Uh, my oldest, you know, as you know now, I already said earlier he's getting ready to go to school. He's super excited about starting a business and and that being his version. And then my youngest, he's 13, who knows, but he is a black belt, you know, and he got that at 12. So that that life attitude and that big bull brave mantra, just having it was, it was a, a beacon of hope, if I could say that. And that's another thing I would say to that 30-year-old Mike out there right now who's just one man is there hope. Dude, there's hope. There absolutely is hope. As long as you have breath, as long as you're willing to have an attitude that you're willing to grow. And that means screwing up too. It totally does. You shouldn't be afraid of failure. As a matter of fact, most really successful people you talk to they are multimillionaire or billionaire business people or athletes or whatever, they'll tell you, the reason they got there is because they failed a lot, (laughs) you know, it's because they failed a lot and they kept going and they kept fighting, you know, but those are two things that were really critical for us. And it's the, it's the blessing. If I could say it that way that we keep, um, even though we don't have Gabriel physically here on this planet with us.
0: There's so much. I'm just like, Oh my gosh. Um, Clint, how do you lead? or your family in a situation like that Mm -hmm. and yet still be honest and real with the emotions you're experiencing, because whether it's the loss of a child, which none of us as fathers ever want to experience or the loss of uh, a parent or even a job, you know, where maybe a dream that's dying and you're, you're grieving. How do you lead through that and yet be real about what you're experiencing and not just locking it away. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I do. And you actually just answered it. I mean, I'll add to it, but it is about being real and authentic and not trying to put on this false bravado. Um, You know, one of the things that's been very interesting for me, we're over three and a half years down the road now, which is not a long time, by the way, you know, for someone who's lost uh, a loved one in particular, it's not a long time. So I'm not implying that I'm just saying it's been three and a half years. So I've had some, some time to be able to look back at this process and how I've led our family and you know where that's gone well and where I could have done better and things like that. So I'm framing it that way specifically, but the truth was I made the decision that morning. And I'm glad you asked that because that was really part two that I didn't mention earlier. Part two of that morning, when we had this conversation about this life or death mentality, uh, we still didn't know what was that going to look like, as you said, walking this out. And so what I told the boys to start with, and, and, and Amaril, is my bride, is I said, listen, none of us knows what this is going to look like in terms of grieving. You know, we we don't know from day to day, from week to week, to month to month. And, you know, in those early stages that I call, I call the entire first year the shock and awe stage. Because you know you're going through birthdays and milestones and all this other stuff for the very first time, and you know, and of course, if it's a a, a really traumatic, um, can I want to be careful the way I say this, Mike. So I'm actually going to check myself for a second here. In our case, Gabriel's death came very suddenly, very suddenly, completely unexpected. Other people see them lose a loved one over time due to an illness and disease or whatever and things like that. Neither one, I first of all, I think comparison is is a horrible barometer of just about anything. And it certainly is of this. So I'm not comparing those things. Um those are both very, 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 very difficult. The thing about it being so sudden is you're thrust into it immediately. You don't have any time to like terms with this person not being in your life you know it's just it's just on you very quickly so with that you know I just said we don't know from hour to hour what we're even gonna look like in the beginning stage so we're gonna we're gonna cry we're gonna be probably angry we're going to be confused um probably gonna be very tired you know and we may fight depression um you know all those different things that, that and and we're gonna have moments of joy too we're going to remember things that he did or things that he said or just quirky things that, you know, happened or whatever. And we're going to laugh. And the point of all of that was that, boys, it's all okay. And, but was more important than that. And this, this is more direct to your question as far as leading my family. What I told them was, is, and you need to know that we're in this together and we're going to do this openly together. So I specifically told them, we're not asking you boys to constantly come to me and mom and let us know if you're feeling hurt or you're feeling, you know, you feel like you're starting to fight depression or something, or, you know, you're angry, whatever it is that you come to us, but then I'm the dad, I'm the man. And so I'm always just showing myself as strong and nothing ever rocks me. And the only time I ever deal with my emotions is behind closed doors where no one can see it so that I can look good and look strong. I think that's a really, really dangerous approach And and I think it's not helpful for our children when we're trying to bring them through really difficult things. So that was the tone we set and we've lived by that. And so I have shed many tears in front of my boys, even very recently. You know, it doesn't take really much of anything. You know, there are triggers, you know, things that can remind you of, you know, I mean, we have planes flying over our house constantly. So they're there all the time. But when it comes to a loved one, you don't need one. You don't need a trigger. They just, they just, your memory, right? So it was done openly. You know, I, I talked to them about what I was feeling and how I was experiencing it. But I also, and and I, I didn't use the word coaching and I don't say I'm coaching you through this, but in a sense, that's kind of what was happening is I was giving them permission. I was coaching them on through, you know, any emotion you feel is okay, but you do need to process it And then you need to move through it because there's another emotion that's going to be necessary (laughs) for you to deal with life, right? Because that's how we're geared, you know, not to, not to confuse anybody, but we're, we're emotional beings, right? We have all these different emotions in us and we move from one to the other effortlessly. We don't even think about it most of the time, right? You know, you can be, you and I could be joking right now. And then I could stub my toe underneath my desk. And a completely different emotion come out of nowhere, right? <laughs> you know? And that's how we are. But when you start talking about, you know, leading your family, and especially when you're talking about leading through really difficult times or tragedy, you know, it needs to be slow. It needs to be intentional and you need to be able to move from one thing to the other. So if you're okay, I could give you one really quick example and story nice. of what yeah. this looks like, you know, real life. Uh, the one to me that's the most vivid is we are in Florida. We have family down there. My father-in-law has a really beautiful boat. We went out on this. Uh, we went out on the water on this island. This is the Fourth of July weekend this last year. So Fourth of July, it's a party. Uh, I didn't mention this yet, but my wife is full-blooded Puerto Rican. The Orlando family is the Puerto Rican side, and so you know they know how to throw a day party. They just really do the and the food and everything. And so we were out on the water having a great time. And we're, we're all kind of, I know not everybody can see me, but you know everybody was pretty much either waist deep in the water along the beach, or they were in some sort of flotation device. So everybody's just kind of bobbing up and down. The music's going, we're having a party. It's great. And Mike, I, I just began to think about Gabriel and I began to miss him. And I knew in the moment that I was feeling some Emotions. Now, you can handle that two different ways. You can suppress it, which, admittedly, to to everybody listening to us right now, there may be times where that's necessary. You know, if I was in the boardroom, or if I have a job, maybe I'm a machinist where I'm dealing with you know very dangerous equipment. I mean, there's a lot of scenarios you could come up with. Mm-hmm. M- maybe right now isn't the moment, and maybe you need to plan for another time later that day or that evening or whatever to go back to how you were feeling and allow yourself to work through it. But this was a day where nobody noticed what I was doing anyway. There was too much activity. And so I literally bobbed about 20 feet away from where everybody was and I allowed myself to feel exactly what I was feeling and I was missing him. And I began to just think about different memories and tears streaming down my face. I wasn't like you know the full-blown snot you know crying and weeping out loud so nobody really even knew what was going on but i just allowed myself to process because i knew i needed to i missed him and i knew if i didn't do it that it was probably going to steal from the time we were having so i took a private moment nobody even knew what was going on and and i allowed myself to feel and then here's what i'm here's why i'm telling this story then i made a decision cuz a healthy way of dealing with our emotions is being intentional about how we exchange emotions. I then turned around and left my sadness in my tears and I embraced joy. I literally, this is literally what happened. I bobbed my way back in the water over to the party. I jumped in the back of the boat because at that point people were starting to eat and and I had a great time and I had a great time the day. The only reason why my family even knew what happened is because later on I told them what I'd experienced because they, I knew they needed to know that if that ever happens for you, it's okay.
0: And one thing that I think is important to keep in mind is that six months later was when the pandemic happened. So you're going through everything. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Three. Yeah. Actually three. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you're dealing not with just gabriel but then also what's going on with the rest of the world so yeah you know it's it's a lot in and of itself to take on just what happened with gabriel it was then another punch right. that came at you and your family as well you know all of us in addition to it so it's not like you get a punch you always get to recover sometimes you're rolling with the punches right and i think your openness to lead and be honest is what helps us to be that different statistic that actually comes out on the other side with our family and ourselves intact um man clint i so appreciate the fact of you sharing um all that you have here today you know where you've come from where you are how that's brought about, brought about, um, big, bold and brave, and then how your family's using that as a tool to, to continue to grow and to help others. Um, I would love for you just to be able to share, you know, how can we get in touch with you outside of this podcast to, to find out more about the healthy mindset that you've shared or, you know, living our life, you know, courageously, would you yeah
1: know? no i'd i'd love to do that uh, the book i wrote I don't, I don't think i gave the title earlier it's it's big bold brave how to live courageously in a risky world and i'm glad you framed it the way you did mike because you know the pandemic did come 3 months after and so in short i don't know without the pandemic if i had written the book as soon as i did but after about 2 years of just watching all of the you know, partly suffering, you know, my compassion level during the pandemic went through the roof because of our own personal experience, our own personal loss. You know, so many people lost lives. And, and then as you said even earlier, you know, nobody's trying to compare, but some people lost lifelong careers and businesses. They'd worked their entire lives to to get to a successful level. Or in some cases, they had just finally launched out their dream business and they are a year in and it destroyed them, you know. And so that was largely why I decided to write the book when I did. And so what I would love is if, if your listeners, you can go to bigbullbrave.us. I know that's US, but I chose that domain on purpose because I think collaborating, like what you and I are doing right now, what we're doing together, us, is what's bringing value to this planet, right? So bigbullbrave.us and get the book. I'm not a hard pusher of my book. I'm really not. Um, but I'm getting back so many great testimonies of people that have been crippled in fear, and that is one thing, no matter where anybody stands on how the pandemic was handled politically and many other ways, that's not my point. This is not a political statement. We do know that fear has gripped the planet unlike any other time in our lifetime. And that many people have lost hope. And do I, is it even worth it for me to dream or to even try to build a business or you know, try to 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 you know create a legacy for my family, all those things. I say yes. <laughs> I say yes. And this book is just something that can be a real useful tool for you uh, to just overcome fear and and learn how to to make not only courageous decisions along in your lifetime, but recognize for yourself where there's there's one kind of risk that's life threatening. Those are the ones that maybe we need to be careful with, right? <laughs> I personally, I'm not going to be jumping off a 200 foot cliff in Mexico somewhere. Not my form of risk. (laughs) But the truth is, is there's a lot of other things in life that we're afraid to risk too. Sometimes we're afraid loving people. Well, sometimes we're afraid to risk getting married. Sometimes we're afraid to risk having really courageous conversations within our marriage that could make our marriage even better. And the list goes on and on. And, I really believe this book is going to help with that. So if you go to us, you can find every other way to connect with me. You can sign up for my weekly newsletter. You can send me a chat. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to hear your story.
0: Clint, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. And, Thank you, Mike. Uh, dude, yeah. You, you just have gone from one end of the spectrum, discovering a healthy mindset, how to live it out, and then just... How to, how to live with your family in a healthy way. I Absolutely love it. So thank you for all you've yeah. shared today, my friend.
1: You're welcome, uh, Mike. If I could say one, this is truly only one sentence. I I gotta leave that thirty year old Mike with this. It's not about perfection. Just it's just about taking a step forward to better your life.
0: Absolutely agree. Agree really? wholeheartedly, my friend. Well, thank you, Clint. Thank you, Mike. Thanks so much, my friend, for joining me on another episode. If you found the information within the show helpful, please leave a review on the platform you're listening to. It helps raise the show's visibility so other men can join us in breaking free. See you on the next episode and remember to continue
1: putting yourself out there. Have a great one.